Welcome to the Machine Commons podcast. It's um, it's the show that doesn't require a PhD in advanced mathematics, nuclear physics, or artificial intelligence in order to listen to it. I urge you to join us, like us, subscribe to us, do all the things, share us, come learn and think about the wider societal impact of this profound technology. We're the Machine Commons, we're the Machine Learning Collective. Um, we talk to a bunch of different interesting people. And this season we've teamed up with Omdina. Omdena is the platform that tackles social issues with artificial intelligence, a community of 4,000 AI engineers, um, to focus on the far-reaching societal impacts of AI. It's great to have you back. This week, we're talking to Albert Yumal. Albert Yumal, he is a very unique individual, uh, technology activist from Philippines. We're going to learn a lot more about machine learning, AI, and also a little bit about Philippines and that part of the world. That's right. I mean, this guy is possibly the most involved human I've ever had the the pleasure to talk to. He just does so much. He's getting involved in almost every way conceivable that a data activist could get involved with his community, uh, both just generally educating the public um, in his data science community and his various kind of social good oriented hustles. Really interesting character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Super, super inspirational. I'm super excited to get into this and talk a little bit about him. So, I mean, where where can we start, Alex? Oh, God. Um, one of the things that he said that I absolutely loved was just the opportunity, or he, he commented that about the opportunity that technology presented about how to organize people with technology. And I, the thing is, is this entire conversation was geared towards privacy. At least it kind of became geared towards privacy. But it began off you know, about using data for good, quote, quote, unquote, good applications. Um, In his words, simulating the universe in data to improve things. And I just think that is such a beautiful sentiment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, that's true. We got into a lot of technical subjects such as network theory and the projects that he has going on related to ML and AI in in direct relation to what's happening in the Philippines. I mean, he's working on a project, I believe it's now, um, that's involving network theory and to improve the election that's going on in the Philippines to understand, you know, which presidents are good, which presidents are not good, because there's all of this craziness happening in Philippines when it comes to presidential elections. Uh, but so he goes into that data literacy, what's wrong with with Philippines and why? Well, in the respect of of data, data science. Um, but then he also talks about why the community is like that and why, um, you know, Philippines has this problem and how history plays a role in it and how his upbringing played a role in what he is doing now. So I think it's a very well-rounded conversation that we're having. That's right. And and I have to confess my my ignorance. I vaguely knew that Philippines was a archipelago, uh, an island-based nation. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize was that there were 86 languages and that not only do they have an incredibly tiered society where both kind of, it sounded, I don't know if I got this right, but it sounded like people were kind of born into the upper echelon of society or not. And that this was fundamentally interwoven with government, with society, with the allocations of budget, with corruption, with bribery, and so on. 
and sort of commenting on on the case study that you referenced he was using i think if i if memory serves he was using data to map what decisions decision makers made in order to inform the public like basically follow the money right like who's where's the money going who's making what decisions who's got a vested interest who's invested in different companies and why would they be channeling money to one area or another basically exposing corruption at least that's that was mm-hmm. my take on it mm-hmm. yeah and, and that's where we got into a little bit of uh of um the ethics behind the application of network theory right because he has this project where he's trying to map out the presidential candidates and what their history has been you know where they're getting their money from and what decisions they're making um based on their past and then we you know saw that cambridge analytica for example was doing that for exactly that same thing but for 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 bad application for evil application so uh you know we touch on ethics again when it comes to the good and bad application of network theory that that was an interesting insight actually that cambridge analytica and and maybe companies like that but specifically cambridge analytica used third world countries uh-huh. and specifically philippines as like a test environment <laughs> wow i mean if that's if that's true i mean i obviously can't comment he definitely seems to think it's true if we have this global ecosystem which structurally incentivizes ethically corrupt or at best dubious companies like Cambridge Analytica um, to go and test our manipulations on political environments and at the very best advertising campaigns and at the worst literally swaying political outcomes in our third in the third world I mean is that really happening that's just crazy yeah, I mean, nothing shocks me anymore, but that's what <laughs> <laughs> that's what he did. He did touch upon, and then the most mind blowing part is that you know the third world third world countries are at such a disadvantage, especially because they are so data illiterate. Yeah, you know they can't even use all of the machine learning and AI models and advanced technologies that the Western world is building. Um, because they they don't even have the data to support that, right? So if you think about it, they're just being used by the Western world, but they can't even benefit from from any way, which way you look at it. Yeah, I think the quote of the day um, to kind of really emphasize that point is quote, "We're the call centers of the world." <laughs> and just like he 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 poses the question, you know, who's benefiting from the vast resources that the Filipinos Philippines have, but Filipino people aren't actually benefiting from you know he he thinks it's always the global players it's always the multinational companies the conglomerates yeah and i don't want to get dark and conspiratorial but i mean this guy this guy is very knee deep in all of this right like he's he's very close to this problem Mm -hmm. um and he's pretty clear in his mind and i think like listen alone for the geopolitical fascination that this conversation presents but yeah this is a data science podcast isn't it lucy i mean did we touch on algorithms? <laughs> we do. We do touch on algorithms. Mainly, I'd say, you know, as mentioned before, data literacy, the, the importance of data um, and strong data and how the lack of strong data and useful data can put countries and communities at a disadvantage. Uh, we talked about network theory, um, the ethics behind it, how it can be used for good and bad. Um, and then we also talked a little bit about uh, some of the projects that um, Albert was doing with Omdena, actually. He was doing um, some computer vision projects, 
Um, and, and I, and I think he was doing some, you know, advanced analytics projects and also leading a local chapter at Omdena. So we did touch on a few data, data science topics. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just to, just to remind everyone listening, this is, um, this is the social good season. Um, but yeah, just circling back on something you said there, Lucy, you're right. Every time we were like, yeah, but you know, tell us about something cool. He was like, well, there kind of isn't that much cool. There's plenty of cool stuff that we've worked on overseas. There's plenty of cool stuff that we've worked on through Omdina, but in the Philippines, you know, we're just busy trying to figure out how to digitize stuff. Like their data storage is essentially on paper. And that's what his activism is mainly about, right? He is part of a lot of open source projects in um, collaboration with the government in the Philippines to be able to provide databases of data in order to be able to do all these cool things. So that's mainly what his activism is about. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the conversation was all about how do we ramp up our systems? Mm -hmm. And I think his, his view is basically education. Exactly. And this is, again exposing my naivety of the people, but they don't have this idea of identity. And without identity, there is no possible explanation of what privacy is, right? Yeah. And very, very, very importantly to add to that is that they don't actually in the Philippines culture have um, a sense of self. So there's no, apparently there's no, when he, when he said that, I was like, whoa, okay, well that makes absolute sense then right like if you if people don't think about privacy or identity but actually quite literally they don't have a word for self or names do you remember he was like people have descriptive names <laughs> exactly how do you talk about the concept of privacy if you don't have names <laughs> right he quipped brilliantly to summarize this that well you know privacy isn't just about you it's not just about you. It's about the community. Privacy is not about yourself. And so in a way to get around this, this lacking concept of self and identity and names, he's like, no, it's about us. And we are, we collectively are compromising something. And that struck a chord because until then, the only real thought I'd put towards privacy is what cookies are on my computer. Am I in targeting lists? Am is my name being exposed in in some kind of email data leak or you know things that are very very specific to me listening to him talk it really drilled in the fact that no this is this is an us problem yeah and to support all of the things that he was talking about um he actually we actually ended the podcast with with some action oriented tips um where he gave some examples of how people can become more educated because that's kind of what his whole solution or quote-unquote solution would be to uh, this problem that they have is educate your people and he actually gave some really good tips on how to do that the machine commons podcast albert umol <laughs> so um welcome to the podcast albert and um, thank you so much for joining yeah glad to be here so how's everything going over there you're in you're in philippines albert right yeah, so yesterday and the, the week before, the weather is so bad, but right now it's sunny again. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's monsoon season, right? Yeah, it's monsoon season, but suddenly it's it's all sunny, you know, climate change. <laughs> Did you just say climate change with a smile? Yeah, but but sad deep inside because, you know, like third world countries are most hit by, by climate change in general. 
pretty crazy the number of um, weather events and that we've been seeing. I think we had, um, you know, three measures like rainfall and hottest day or something. We had three of these measures in the top 10 for the first time, I think, kind of ever. So what have the weather events in the Philippines been like? Has Have you noticed much of a change there? Yeah, a lot, a lot. So before I, I was I was not um, experiencing any flood in my vicinity, but now like it's very common. Like once it's like raining, like three days continuous, then you'll see that, oh, everything is soaked. What does that even look like a monsoon? I've never been in a monsoon. I've only heard about it. What does that even it's basically continuous raining for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. It's gloomy weather and we're not used to it because um, when I was like a kid in the Philippines, growing in the Philippines, always sunny. So it's kind of like like different now because before when we're having monsoons, it's only for the month of July and August. But now it's, it's stretching to October until December. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. And and are all places hit equally? I'm assuming like some areas of Philippines are hit worse than others and, and that can become detrimental. Yeah, I agree. So uh, it, it's variable since we are an archipelago. So there are so many island groups and they have different climate patterns. But I think most hit would be the lower part of the Philippines because there are more like air movements there. So the typhoon there is more extreme, but the problem is Poverty is also more apparent in that area. So it needs more resource in terms of disaster risk management and those kinds of efforts to help them. It's crazy here in the Philippines right now because we're not only experiencing typhoon, there's so many active volcanoes as well. So when you go outside, you see there's lahar, like flowing, like what, what's happening? You're joking. Then we have COVID and then we have, yeah, a lot of things in our politics as well. So aside from like physical changes in our environment, the ideological and propaganda of, of, of like election and ideologies, it's all over the place. So it's really fun to be an activist right now in the Philippines because so many things to like work with and to advocate for. So true. I mean, wow. So things are good. <laughs> in short things are going good <laughs> uh, god forbid you, um, you're the person who when asked how are you actually proceeds to um, tell them how you are no but Jesus that sounds terrible <laughs> um, tell, tell us a little bit about your um, your activism yeah so um, it's part of actually my upbringing in uh, starting in university so I remember when I was a freshman I was uh, frustrated with my computer because I'm using uh, like Windows operating system before. I am from a physics background and I play a lot with my computer because I'm making some simulations about how can we like create a better universe through our computers or things like that. So I got frustrated because I, I was always like breaking my operating system. So I transitioned to using Linux during my first year in college, so open source. So luckily there was an organization in my university called the UP Linux Users Group. So it's a university users group in the, in the campus. So uh, the good thing about that is that I, I recognized early on that technology is like political. For example, we were discussing like uh, mottos in our organization, like we need to unplug from the sockets of digital imperialism. So things like that. So we were able to like connect how technology is related to sociology, to society, to philosophy even. So at an early age, I was aware of the repercussions of how technology can affect and uh, influence the lives of, of every, every people, uh, basically. Then after, um, after like uh, joining that organization, so we were able to do some good projects together, like doing some uh, digital literacy in the country, because way back then, 
of the Philippines is really like data poor. We don't have any data infrastructures at all. So what we do is we go to communities. We, we call them barangay here in the Philippines. And like we teach people how to like use computer using Raspberry Pi since we don't have a lot of lots of budget. So uh, aside from doing open source technology, we also like advocate for open hardware. So Arduino, Raspberry Pi, low cost uh, computers to uh, leverage and take advantage in our conditions in the country. To continue with my activism, I, I also like uh, the organization was active as well in, in campaigning for certain issues. So for example, when there is an increase in tuition fee, so we always rally on that because we know that the repercussions to, to the students, for example, that um, some people will have like limited access to education because uh, more people don't have like enough money to pay for their tuition. And yet the university that I am in is a state university, meaning the the government should be funding a lot of the things that we pay for, um, basically, like in a social manner. So um, one thing that's that sparks in me in my activism way back in 2017 is when we we rally in Congress together with my organizations to say to the government that, hey, uh, we have data to show you that 8.3 billion pesos is enough to fund free education in the country. So luckily, uh, the congressman, the, the president even listened to us. That's why in 2017, they enacted the law, the Free Tertiary Education Bill. So uh, we showed them how like the data skills that we have as technologists can make data-driven decisions. So we showed them like a network plot of all of the expenditures in the country. And we showed them that the budget that we are asking is only a tiny portion of what they're they're giving to military expenditures, to debt servicing in the country. So we're only like uh, asking for coins in the budget of the Philippines. So they recognize that. And uh, I think that sparked my interest of really like using data uh, in my activism. Wow. <laughs> what an, ama- what what an amazing... <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, I wrote down simulations to make a better universe. That was the first <laughs> but... thing I wrote down too. <laughs> 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 I love I love this idea. So you I, I read on your profile that you um you're a Harry Potter fan. I'm gonna skip over that topic to avoid sounding um, <laughs> to avoid revealing how much of a fan I am too. But digital imperialism was another buzzword. So I think there's some interesting things here. So the power of data to simulate the universe, to to capture information about the world and to communicate this as you've done really successfully to make real world change. It's amazing. How does that feel? It's still, it feels normal. But for an activist, uh, if you ask them like the motivation, when we wake up in the morning, we always ask to whom are the things that we're doing for. So we always feel like motivated because when I woke up, I'm doing this for my countrymen. I'm doing this for my for the younger generation. So I'm always energized to code. For example, I don't get like frustrated. Uh, I always tell myself that I don't have a job. I have a hobby because I love I love making things. I love collaborating with people. So uh, I always feel motivated uh, when when doing these projects because I know that uh, there's a direct impact to other people as well, and they can be inspired to do the same as well. So um, there's always a saying in activism that uh, there is power in numbers. So more people doing the same things that you do can affect um, greater change in whatever advocacy you want to advance. So what's the most frustrating thing to be an activist? A uh, frustrating thing, of course, uh, as an activist, um, as a social and political activist, is always the things that we see sometimes are too idealistic. So, for example, some of the things that I'm doing, I, I, I felt in my heart and in my brain that it should work. 
that that people will like embrace the things that we're doing for them but sometimes it's frustrating for example uh the things that we tell for example the government to to listen to us that uh because of our models to diminish corruption in the philippines for example you need to open your data you need to increase your transparency by letting people access those data set that, that can encourage citizen science for example so uh it's really like frustrating sometimes because in in the world of activism uh, there are two entities for example you as the activist and your opponents quote unquote and sometimes they are really like vested in their self-interest in corporate and capitalist greed so i think that's that's really like my frustration and how we can really transform it culturally because we're living in a capitalist advanced capitalist society in the philippines so it's really like hard to convince people that uh, after you graduate college it's not all about money it's also about finding a purpose and I think that's the good thing as well. So the things that I recognize about the generation that I am in is that a lot of people are woke. So for example, a lot of my friends in the industry also have a lots and lots of passion projects. They also join the rallies and advocacies that we do. So I think it's really important right now to be more connected, although we are getting more polarized with uh, social media, big data, and uh, computational propaganda online. But there's a lot of opportunity to really organize more people using tech. So I always tell this, that the technology is a dialectic tool, for example, meaning it can be used for bad, as we've already seen, but it can also be used for good applications. Yeah, even the scientists before, these things are not new, right? Even in the time of Einstein, when they were creating the atomic bomb, for example, uh, originally they thought of the atomic bomb as a source of um, huge amount of energy, right? But apparently, like people in all of our complexities found a way to use it for mass uh, destruction for weapons of mass, de mass destruction, right? So it's very parallel to what we are having right now with technology and data war right now. We have the concept of the weapons of mass destruction of using algorithms <laughs> to really like propagate uh, chaos in, in, in our world. So definitely we need more people in the space to really combat these things, to safeguard truth and to really foster like an open world that, that people can learn from, that can appreciate. Uh, both uh, online and offline presence and just live life with dignity. Wow. Organize more people with data. What came first for you, the data or the, um, or the activism? Well, I am from a physics background. I was totally different when I was in, in high school, for example. I'm really like data-oriented. I have like blindfolds back then uh, growing up because I'm a really like a uh, huge nerd. I don't go out of my room. I don't... Well, I, I am going to admit it, but back way back in, 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 in high school, for example, I don't care about society at all. I just want to like learn, 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 be curious about things, to solve mathematical problems, to win competitions and, you know, Asians. That's stereotypical for us because our parents always nudge us to that kind of direction to, to get a PhD after you graduate and then to secure a high paying job. But I realized that I need to challenge that kind of norm in our country because uh, definitely, it will not be sustainable because all of the things that we're experiencing economically, socially, and politically in the country. So it's really like complex. We need more people to to rethink the ways that we do um, our systems. So to answer your question, I am uh, like a technical person first, like uh, a data person first before I became an activist. It's interesting. Um, there's, I mean, there are so many quotes around this idea that the more knowledge a society has like the assumption of um 
say, a foreign intelligence, like a, an alien civilization, the basic assumption that if they're much, um, you know, much smarter than us and they're much more evolved, that they will have evolved, you know, kindness and that we should therefore not fear the alien civilization. And I think that was like the Carl Sagan, why, why, you know, why are we sending like a homing beacon with directions and a map like to find Earth out to potentially advanced alien civilizations? But um, tell me about that journey. So you learned more about just stuff and then it fostered, the, it fueled this need or this desire to change things and improve things for the next generation? Uh, it's not like as linear as that because at first I was really like selfish. Uh, I just wanted to like finish college, finish my PhD and get a high paying job. But then I realized technology should be humanized based from the discussions that I had as well with the organization. What picked my interest to continue activism is really meeting people and humanize the technology that I, I use. So we have many programs in the university where we visit farmers, where we visit workers. I live with like a farmer group for like three months. Um, I experience how they uh, they are using technology, how they integrate it, because it's very very backward in our country. We don't really have like a high culture of science. We don't have Newton. We don't have Einstein. So uh, it's really like important for me to understand how people are perceiving technology and science. So growing in university, like learning, um, while learning my subjects, I was also learning society as well. So during the weekends, I, I always go to enclaves of workers, going to farmlands, and to just talk to people like how how they would like envision society for their for for for, for their siblings, for their uh, grandchildren. Uh, how would they imagine uh, things would change? So most of the conversations that we have is always around how how technology is also like shaping um, future right now because back then. They, they do not have a computer in the in their household but now like most of the time of their children most of the time are spent on on smartphones spent on on computers so definitely it's not like an inner calling for me that activism that i had is also like an external push the way that I, I i i bring myself closer to the people how i understand their problems and how i connect the skills that i have to solve their problems is really the key that really like nudged me to go in uh, my current direction that's interesting. I always find it interesting when people have that sort of calling, right? Like we would call it kind of a calling. I have this calling to do this, but there's a lot of external factors that were involved in your kind of journey of, of going into this, right? And you mentioned like you've always been a nerd. You've always tried to understand things. But um, like when we think about like nature versus nurture, have is your family also something that, that was um, kind of a factor in you becoming... Um, the person that you are today or, or do you think it's just like the country that you grew up in what do you think was that like thing that got you there yeah I think it was like a struggle at first like my my family my father in particular was really like against me being an activist because um, they have already like this plan for me um, for for my future for example because I'm also like the first born. So, you know, the responsibility in Asian families when you're first born, then you need to take care of your siblings, take care, take care of the siblings of your siblings, take care of the whole family when you're your parents, your grandparents, the grandparents of your grandparents. So you need to take care of a lot of things. And um, I, I battled through it through like cultural revolution of always talking to them that, hey, the generation that I am in, we're seeing a lot of problems. I hope you understand the line, the line of work that I do. So I made them understood that, that my goal in life is not to be rich and to, to stay with my family, but to, to share the skills that I have, not only for, um, my immediate, 
uh, circle, but also like to, to share it to, to other communities as well. Uh, but I think it's also like a product of, uh, you're correct, Lucy, what you mentioned about the particular condition that we have here in the Philippines. So there's so many things happening in our politics. Uh, when we're talking about um, sociology, for example, ah, I, I, I didn't mention, but another thing that, that engaged me to do activism is that I always sit in to sociology classes. I even like became part of a sociology organization. So I learned about Marxism. I learned about functionalism. Uh, structuralism, so how societies are formed. So I think that was also a transformational factor why I am able to connect uh, the things that I am doing before in technology and physics to to so sociology and um, the economy, for example. Because when I'm seeing the like, problems that our GDP is going low and then there's so many political killings in the country, I always can relate it to how technology plays in a role into it. And even if you like just study uh, history, for example, you will see that every time that we evolved to the different structures in our society, for example, in the Philippines, we started as a communal type of society, so hunting and gathering. So after that, we, we became, we transitioned to feudalism. So if you look at the technological tools that we used, it really like shaped the way that we did. For example, in, in communal society, the tools that they were using are, uh, the, the arrows. And then after the feudal, it should be like the, the, the plows and the, the carabao and things like that. And then if, when you transition to a more industrial society, then you have your, 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 um, your factories, your steam engines and so on. And then we are now in the backward capitalist type of site that we have right now that in, in the age of internet, in the age of computers, in the age of the fourth industrial revolution. So we're seeing a lot of these factors repeating from our history. So I think it's unique as well in the way that I do my activism is the way that I understood this story and how technology uh, paved the way for me to like, connect the dots. What factors are repeating? There's a, there's a sort of an interesting thing that you said about talking about um, technology of the day and cultural change yes. with um, your family and perhaps even your grandparents. Um, you know what they say that... Um, if you if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it or something. Yeah, I'm curious about these um <laughs> these factors that are repeating. Okay, so the well, one particular pattern that I observe is that those who own technology always have the power. They 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 are the ones who uh, establish the status quo. So, for example, back then in um in feudalism, those who control the tools, for example, the technology back then, are the landowners, so the users those kinds of things. And now, who controls the power? For example, in the country, in the context that we have right now, you don't have any national industries in the country. Um, a lot of the things that we do now in the country are service-oriented. So we are the call centers of the world. We, we just give service, but we don't have industries. We can't even... The, the Philippines is really rich. That, that's the first lesson that we teach in uh, Filipino activism. Uh, the Philippines is so rich, but why are there so many Filipinos that are poor? So we always ask that question, who's benefiting from the vast resources that, that we have right now? If you look at statistics, the Philippines is one of the most biodiverse uh, places in the world. So we have so many reserves of gold, we have so many reserves of copper, of nickel. But if you see who's in control of those things, who are in control of processing the straw materials uh, to, to finish goods, it's always the global uh, players. So a lot of uh, multinational corporations and business conglomerates own it right now. So it's similar to the patterns that we see in history that are very uh, that is very similar to uh, the landlords in feudalism, similar to what's happening right now in the country, that 
um, the oligarchs and the big business co international conglomerates control those kinds of things. So uh, the choice of people are now limited. So as compared before, the, the farmers, uh, it's hard for them to rally their rights because they are limited in terms of their capacity to, to rally for those uh, things that they want to assert. So similar to, to the people um, in the Philippines right now, all of the data workers, all of the factory workers, it's similar. Um, we are very limited in our capacity, but then again, if we rally together, we see that we are more than the 1%, which are the oligarchs and the multinational corporations. We can, uh, we call it like a triangle. So like most of the people in the Philippines are farmers and, uh, and workers and only like a 1% is like the ruling elite. But ultimately, there's a segment called the petty bourgeois. So the petty bourgeois are those people who can have a decision of whether they would join the toiling masses or serve the ruling elite. So it's ultimate. It's an ultimate discussion that we always uh, talk about in in activism. Uh, it's your choice. Um, what direction you want to go. But ultimately, uh, in all of the things that we encourage, uh, we always encourage people to to have bias because we have like a, a myth of objectivity in anything that we do, right? So the 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 thing that we say to people is that always place your bias to the marginalized and oppressed, regardless of what industry you are, regardless of what. Um, um, location you may be always side with the marginalized and oppressed. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, uh, what was the what was the original question here? Uh, the fact is repeating. So, I think you mentioned that power seems to centralize. Your your comment on multinational um, corporations is quite interesting. I didn't quite understand what you meant. So, they you you were saying sort of who's got who's in control, right? Who's in control of resources? And you you mentioned this kind of um, tripartite breakdown of society and that the way that the ruling elite keeps control. So is the ruling elite the, the multinational corporations? Is that what you're saying? Or are um, you saying that this is... Yeah. So the ruling elite in the Philippines is also like, it's composed of different segments. So there are uh, the oligarchs. So uh, the problem with the Philippine government, for example, uh, is that we treat it as a bureaucrat capitalism, meaning all of the businessmen are also in the government. So it's like they, they're very similar. So those who run the country are also like owning a lot of the businesses in the country. They own most of the land in the country. And then they always like partner with uh, multinational conglomerates. For example, those big companies um, that are present everywhere and want to partner in the country to produce more income, to put their surplus products so they can have more revenue. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, I think next year, actually in the Philippines, I think I, I talked to you about this at some point. Is um, you're going to have elections, right? Yes, yes. Okay, and you're, and tell us a little bit about the project that you want to work on, which is uh, to build a tool that will um, allow the society to, society to see actually who's voting for who, so that the corruption, I guess, can be minimized, right? So yes. what is that? What is that all about? What's the motivation behind there? I mean, I'm assuming just based on your earlier comment of the, the the people who are ruling the countries are also the businessmen who are partnering with the corporations. So I'm assuming there's a lot of tension there. And what's the, yeah, so so what's the motivation behind that? And, and can you tell us more? Yeah, so um, the motivation behind that is to, well, it's also based on the lessons that we've learned from elections happened all over the world, right? How computational propaganda transpired in the U.S. elections, for example, the issues that was uh, elevated using Cambridge Analytica, so those kinds of issues. So we figured out that, hey, 
um, for example, uh, it's a trivia that Cambridge Analytica first tested here in the Philippines during our election in 2015. So we were the, the like lab rats before they were able to scale it up. Again, um, there is a need to to balance the power relation. Wait, the the can you go back to the point? So you were the lab rats for Cambridge Analytica. They started in Philippines. Yes, they started in Philippines and Turkey. And like, uh, small countries they started there because uh, the 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 president right now in the Philippines we have like receipts that they were like talking to uh, people from Cambridge Analytica and it was also um, if you are familiar with the documentary um, coded bias so I think it's on Netflix and social dilemma event so they were able to like uh, reference it as well that uh, Cambridge Analytica started with like small countries with very um, like popular strongman figures, like the president that we have now. Hmm. Wow. Oh, interesting. So then, okay. So fast forward to to what you're what you're trying to do um, next year. Yeah. So again, the inspiration was to uh, practice the term pluralism that we use in sociology. So pluralism means how can we balance power? Um, the problem with the Philippines right now is that um, the rightist group is so powerful and the opposition is really so this small. Because uh, of like the populist manner that that people are supporting uh, the president and um, his his cronies, so to balance it, we were thinking of a way to really like help people make their decisions data driven and evidence based. So, for example, if they believe in a certain cause and that particular politician is not about that cause, for example, about environment, but that um, like politician owns a huge number of mining sites in the country that are extracting. Um, all of our resources without really giving back proper taxes in the country. So we would want to to know something like that using um, relevant tools in, in machine learning, in data science. In particular, uh, the tool that we will try to use is called um, network theory. So if you're familiar with this um, subdomain in data science called complex systems. So I learned it through my physics uh, degree because I'm from applied physics background and we're using complex system to understand and to solve non-linear systems in the world. And again, lots of problems in the world are non-linear. So um, most of the algorithms that we tried playing around in machine learning, like linear regression, so those regression models are very simplified, right? But real world problems are complex. So you need more complex algorithms to solve for that, to account for uh, the abstractions, to account for variables that you can't easily predict. So to account for chaos, basically, in nature. So there are more. There are better algorithms that are suited for those kinds of complex systems, such as the elections in the country. So what we plan to do is to uh, use network theory to understand the support system of these politicians. So, for example, if a politician is also an owner of like a huge mining corporation or a politician is also like supporting this particular popular candidate who stand are the following against human rights or those kinds of things. So we're, it would be clear in a visualization that, okay, so if, if I'm going to vote for my mayor for, for our town, for example, I know the support network of these people. Where are the funds coming from to support his campaign? So it, are the are the things that this uh, person campaigning for aligned with the things that I also believe in? So uh, it's not really like to like change the way that they they vote, but just to make it visible to them, to make it transparent to them that this is the the network that we have in our country that that needs to be visible to them. So, do you see these um, kind of tools? Of, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I was about to like elaborate on the tools because 
uh, my experience with it um i i, I will have a talk uh, on uh, it was supposed to be uh, in august i i i should be like in taiwan because um they're they're one of the best open data like practitioners in the world uh, i think they were ranked like the best way back in 2018 i did the research study of how i use network theory as a tool to understand corruption in the country so i did uh scrape all of the procurement of the government agencies in the country and i net i use network theory to to analyze how corruption uh happens in the country by looking at the spending and the particular companies, private companies that these government agencies engage with. So now I, I see the corruption network in the country. I was able to um, use that research and uh, join a competition, a hackathon in the country where I won. Um, luckily, so now the algorithms that I posted are now open source. So more people can also apply those algorithms to like QA and use it to any social networks that they wanted to analyze. So I think that's also like a motivation because I just finished uh, the code that I was using. So I think it, it it would be like logical to also use it in election too to so see how, how things would work out. But isn't that a little bit like, I mean, I th I'm always fascinated by network theory and I think it can be applied to pretty much anything, right? Because if exactly. you think about our universe, everything is connected, you know, the rule of like, every sixth person that you met is, is is somehow connected to like the first person that you meet degrees of separation six degrees of separation exactly so uh but my i mean if you like flip the coin isn't it a little bit like intrusive for example how far do you go how far do you dig for like connections you know what if i back in 2001 somehow went to like some corporation and but that i'm not affiliated with and i have nothing to do with but so like, how far do you go? How can, can it can, can it be destructive? This kind of like deep analysis of you as a human. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's actually the same tool that Cambridge Analytica used in their platforms in their study. Network theory <laughs> is the <laughs> that they use. So I'm just flipping the coin right now since they are already using it for bad applications. I'm using it to combat it, to combat the method that they are already using. I love it. That's so funny. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, so how does it work? So. Um, for a, sort of for a non-technical audience, what's going on? You know, what's happening? How are the? What exactly is happening? Where is this information? How much of it's public? I mean, because you know, people have private social media profiles, but do scrapers somehow access these? Like, tell me a little bit about um, how that all works. Well, uh, for the project that I am doing, of course, I'm also teaching data ethics in, in my class, so we also like think about. Uh, the bias that we introduce in our models and it's also an advocacy of mine to really like uh, help people understand that data are people too so we need to understand um, how to properly organize those data so for example as what Lucy was pointing a while ago in network theory or uh, in the typical algorithms that we use in machine learning uh, we imagine things as just data points right so point A, point B, point C. So we only analyze those points as separate entities. But in network theory, you look at the connections of those data points. So now you have more dimensions of looking at patterns, applying your pattern recognition algorithms to uh, have more deeper understanding. But then again, um, it's a double-edged sword. It can be used to uh, surpass or challenge your privacy, for example, or the things that you want don't want to be uncovered. But I think it's all about aggregation. Uh, in the recent project that I did with Omdena, uh, in the uh, application that we built to understand AI energy access in the Philippines, so it's the same dilemma that we were faced with because 
the data that we have, we can identify individual household. So we don't want to do that because maybe this particular household then don't want to be identified that they are in a um, like impoverished location, so things like that. So what we did, uh, we tried to integrate like the proper practices in introducing ethics in processing tenacity and veracity in how we handle data. So what we do, we introduce some techniques like putting some intended errors in, 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 in the data. So the points are like a little bit off by like one kilometer or so. So it, it, it cannot be traced the individual. Um, and then again, going back to the question of sourcing the data. Um, I also teach this, um, in, in a bootcamp, um, like format. I also teach people, uh, the concept of like doing ethical data mining. So in practice, if you're familiar with um, how people scrape data online, everything basically is legal to scrape if it's out there, right? But the concern is, is it ethical? Even Facebook right now, if you type uh, like Facebook, how, how they wanted to handle scraping. So they have many clauses right now. They just published it last April about how they would um, like combat scraping because um, they, they are now recognizing the repercussions of making those data available too much that there's no way for, for, for people to QA it basically. So again, the answer to that would be how the data points are aggregated. Can we connect it and trace it to the individual? So that's the only like key. If you can trace the data back to the individual, then don't process it. So always, always make sure that your model is aggregated, that it cannot be traced back to the individual. Okay. What are some of the implications and, and cultural changes you're anticipating that haven't maybe happened yet or are maybe beginning as a result of this this kind of technology? Yeah. So I have experience as well working with Mozilla. So Mozilla is also like a non-government organization. And our advocacy is to create a better internet, an open internet for all. So I think um, based from my actual experience, one of the things that would change here in the Philippines that I also anticipate is the concept of privacy. So culturally, the problem with the Philippines, if you study anthropology, for example, uh, as an Asian like country, we don't have the concept of self. Uh, it was developed later on through the introduction of like Western cultures. But generally, if you look at our history, we don't have names. We just call uh, like people collectively. For example, uh, you're Tagalog, meaning you live close to the river. So things like that. So it's hard for us to define really like what an individual is. But right now we see that given the advent of technology, of, of the advent of big data, we now realize the importance of integrating privacy in our culture. We don't have a Filipino word for for privacy. Wow. So that's how uh, flawed it is to us <laughs> to think about privacy. So when I always talk to my colleagues, hey, what do you think about the, the data that you are sharing online? Hmm, I don't care. I'm not hiding anything. So that's a typical response even conversations. Wow, but, but now we see that we can challenge that idea that we can evolve as well culturally and how we think about data, how we think about how, what we put online and think about privacy. Because uh, I, I believe and I always tell it to them that privacy is a herd immunity. It's not only about yourself. It's all about your network. It's all about the family that you have, the the, the data that you have with them. It's, it will also be exposed. So it's always something that is community-based. Privacy is not about yourself. I love that. What a soundbite. Yeah, and that's uh, that's kind of also the whole network analysis. That brings us back to the whole network analysis thing, right? It's not about ourselves. We're always connected to something that will be hurt either by our actions or what's uncovered about us so true so tell us more about the the self i think that was a that was a, a big thing I, i'm curious to understand you mentioned you as a as a society right in philippines 
you don't have this concept of self. Is that something religious? Like I know Buddhism might be similar to that, but is it something religious? Is it something in your government? Like what's the, how did that come about? It's a long discussion, but historically, I think uh, it came from our like Polynesian ancestors. Like um, generally we call our group as Balangay or Barangay because we're from Polynesia, right? So we travel always as a group. So it, it doesn't make sense to like single out an individual because an individual is always a part of a group. There's a function for that individual and you cannot remove an individual to the group. Um, it's not always positive, by the way, because uh, since the Philippines is archipelag archipelagic, we're composed of different islands and these island groups have different language and culture as well. So it's really hard to unite a country that is already divided geographically. So when we're doing our advocacies, you need to do island hopping, you need to like, uh, like go to, to an airplane ride so many boats just to, to reach an area for example so it's it's really like hard um but then again as i've mentioned it's not always like positive to have that like uh, with the concept of like just a community because um based on our history the way that the conquerors are like for example we were subjugated by the spanish for 333 years then came the americans then came the japanese then came the americans again so those kind of things really like the technique in the philippines is always divide and conquer because they know that we have the concept of self as a community so we have this inherent segregation that we always impose to ourselves so it's really like hard to define uh, nation building in the philippines because this the culture is really like varied we have 86 languages and not dialects 86 languages in the country because we're archipelagic so many cultures that you need to like combine so the complexity is really like difficult because you need to account and respect culture as well so yeah i think that's that that's what makes uh, activism harder in the philippines because we don't have it's hard when you ask uh, someone what is to be a filipino for example they will answer you oh that would be our national hero that would be like our national flower it, it's hard to like unite to a certain cause right because we always like just use symbolism that are empty and just like created by those who like gave us independence but it's not really like organic like coming from the people that they unite to a certain cause or a certain calling and is that what causes most of the conflict then in philippines as well is that you're not like tied to a specific something yes for example in the u.s it's about you know your rights and they're pretty much stand for this. I mean, of course, there's left and there's right. And those are pretty much like very polar. extreme, but yeah, very polar. And right now the U.S. is like pretty much left, right. There's like no in between. Um, but at least the left and the right are like focused on the same thing. But it seems like for you guys, everybody's focused on different things. And, and is that what causes conflict? Yes, uh, in a way. So there's so many, for example, um, we, we call this term like regionalist because we have so many region. So we always like, for example, if I'm going to support someone, even I don't disagree, even if I disagree with you, but we came from the same province where I'm going to support you no matter what. So yeah, cultural like, like things that we, we really need to like combat and battle because, um, Philippines is a very young country. A lot of the things that we do culturally are borrowed as well. So even like our language, most of the terms that we have are based on Spanish. So sometimes when I'm like listening mm -hmm. to telenovela in Mexican or even Spanish, I can understand what they're talking about. I've actually noticed that like you guys have a lot of Spanish names because <laughs> there's a lot of people who are working, who, who are actually working at Omdena from the Philippines and you guys have like Gonzalez, Geronimo, you have Romero. Exactly. And sometimes, <laughs> yeah, Romero. Sometimes when you speak, I'm like, is that Spanish? And I'm like, no, maybe maybe not but i guess so it's interesting i didn't know that 
that's very close the culture so so <laughs> we even like inherited your concept of siesta so we sleep every afternoon because of the spaniards <laughs> <laughs> so it's siesta you call it siesta not siesta, siesta. yeah wow that's interesting Funny. so do you actually sleep uh, yeah <laughs> yes a lot <laughs> i just came from my siesta before this meeting because it's like four o'clock in the philippines <laughs> Well, it's paid off. I think I might take a leaf out of your book. I mean, you're a, an absolute bundle of energy and passion. It's crazy. I mean, right from the beginning of this conversation, you've just been so, um, you've just had so much to say because you've done so much. It's amazing. I'm interested. Maybe, maybe can we talk more about real technology that's in play that's actually delivering social good in the Philippines now or maybe soon or something that you're working on? Tell us about some cool stuff. Yeah. So in terms of like the the pipeline that's happening in the country, in terms of how technology might be applied to social good, there are efforts efforts right now from the UNDP, for example, or even the World Bank. They're funding some of these projects. But then again, we need to understand that um, this kind of skills is still like elitist in the country. Not all people can have access to it. So that's why I'm always collaborating with Omdenais to really like increase interface to people who wants to do um, data for good, AI for good, because I think that it's really relevant. So uh, as I've mentioned, although I have many passion projects that I, I advocate for personally, it's not enough. There's so many problems in the country. There's so many problems in the world that we can contribute to. But definitely there are already efforts being done. For example, uh, there are many hackathons in the country uh, really focused in environment, in combating fake news, for example, or even uh, encouraging transparency in the government through machine learning, through the things and the methods that I mentioned a while ago. But it's still in its infancy because the problem in the Philippines is that we are data poor. Um, most of the, the files from our government are not in databases. It's actually in, in file cabinets. So the problem is if there's like a fire, not on wood, so we don't have data anymore, so we can't do any models because in, in machine learning, remember, garbage in, garbage out, your model is only as good as your data. But the data in the Philippines, if it's not existing, it's very dirty, it's in a different format. So I think that vocacy right now in the Philippines uh, that a lot of people are being onboarded with is digital transformation and how we can mm. uh, ramp up our processes uh, of, of our uh, smart systems, like using IoT, for example, to do optical character recognition, to automatically encode uh, things that are like typed in analog paper or things like that, and how mm. we can digitally mm. transform things. So I'm, that's actually my uh, advocacy right now. It's not really like focus on advanced algorithms because uh, the Philippines, honestly, is not yet prepared for that. We really need to like prepare for... Uh, ourselves um, using data management first, understanding what data needs to be available so that people can use this uh, advanced algorithms later on. But we need to have a good foundation first of our data strategies of our data governance framework. And I think actually, I, I think a lot of people don't understand that the difference between data rich and being data poor. People are like, what does that even mean? Like, why do you have to be data? So can you explain that a little bit more of like, 
why can you not use advanced algorithms in Philippines? Why do you need to be data rich? Like, what is the difference between being data rich and data poor? Yeah, so, so that's really funny because like a lot of projects right now in the Philippines, when we're doing like algorithms, we don't use Philippine data. We always use like open data from Europe, open data from this, like Boston data set. We always use those data set because it's really fun. It's, it's clean. The columns are there. But in the Philippines, if you want to process government data, you need to file a report. You will need to wait three months minimum for the first phase of your uh, request to them. So we have a freedom of information bill. Supposedly, they are making the information accessible. But, you know, the government, the bureaucracy, it takes minimum of three months for the first phase. And then you need to contact what particular agency are you looking for. For example, Department of Energy, another three months and that. So that's what it means to be data poor. There's so much bureaucracy. There's so many uh, frictions just to get uh, like sizable data that you can use in your algorithms. And remember, good algorithms require um, more data. So if you have more, more training data set, then you're more confident with your results. You can establish more confidence with, with what your model is producing, right? So um, it's really like another frustration because it's really hard to do data uh, for good projects in the country when you don't have data at all. So good thing about it right now is that there's so many like organic efforts from people to collect data and put it in database. And there's so many conversations that's starting. And I think this is a good platform as well to really encourage more, more people to help on uh, encouraging open science, open data, because through opening our systems, we can increase our innovations together, right? So it's also like part of my activism that data about people should be free, should be social, it should be accessible to anybody because definitely it's about them. They should own them. So that's why when you th when you're asking about like cool technologies and cool things happening in Philippines right now, we can't talk about you guys building stuff to fly to the moon yet, like we're doing in the U.S. or in Europe, right? Right now, it's just about the data. It's like no cool projects happening now. We need the data. We need to be data rich, and then we can work on those innovative things. Exactly. Exactly. So true. And like whether it's an organization or a country, it's interesting to because I hear that all the time about organizations. You know, step one. Where's the where's the data? How, how, where are you getting it from? How is it being organized? Is it being cleaned? I mean, eighty percent of a data scientist's a corporate data scientist's job is cleaning data, basically. Um, and it's interesting to hear you say that about a, a country. Like, it's kind of making me think of a country as a bit of a business. Because you know, step one, same thing: collect data. It'd be quite cool to catch your thoughts on um, on machine learning in general, sort of trends that you've noticed. What's, what are some cool things that are happening in your world? I mean, unfortunately, we can't maybe talk about Filipina-based data, but you're still working on imported data sets. So what are you noticing as um, in terms of this field? Like, where's it going? Yeah, uh, interesting. Well, I'm already familiar with machine learning um, like a few years now because the research laboratory that I was in during college, uh, we don't call it machine learning. So machine learning is just like a buzzword right now. But in terms of the engineering that we do, we call it control system. So any black box, you have an input, you have an output, you get the ratio of your input over output to predict what the, the black box or the transfer function, as we call it. So it's, it's, it's similar to, it's, it's what we call machine learning right now. But basically it's those kinds of algorithms that, that uses, um, input and output functions to make sense of the system. So the trends right now is really like interesting because if you look at historically or even how big corporations apply, because I was also part of a big corporation. Uh, so I learned really like industry-based machine learning from them. And I'm really acknowledging that, that I, at first, before doing my activism, I ate my principles just to learn how they do their things. Because 
then I would know, okay, so these are the technologies that I need to learn to use for my advocacy. So, um, so I'm not being like a total hypocrite because I, I learn from the industry as well, the things that I do right now, uh, thanks to them. Those algorithms that they use, although are advanced, uh, I think sometimes are unethical. So there's so many conversations right now on how we can humanize uh, machine learning and even not use machine learning at all for some use cases, right? Because uh, it might be detrimental to a person's privacy, for example, or it can affectly, uh, greatly affect uh, certain decisions that is not morally correct. Uh, to our standards. So I think uh, more conversations would be on that kind of space and how we can humanize um, these kinds of technologies. And I always tell this to, to people that I engage with, we should build technology, even machine learning models as extension of our humanity, because that's what's missing. We're always like living right now in a closed space. We're still in a pandemic. It, it always feels that we are alone in our own space and we are like disconnected to other people. But if you really like, uh, look into the big picture of how things are connected, how we can do systems thinking, how we can do design thinking to see all of these connections that are already at place and we can have a clearer view of things. So I think the growth towards machine learning is to really have more conversations about data ethics. Hmm. And, and I mean, ethics, I think is a data ethics is a big topic worldwide, or maybe it's just like the world that I live in and, and the things that I read about and all of that. But when you talk to somebody, and I know the biggest thing about ethics is educating people about what are what is data ethics, why is it important, why do we need it in machine learning so that machine learning doesn't become this like powerful thing that kills everyone. <laughs> um, but so so, but when you talk to people who like don't even know what data ethics are, like what does that even mean? What is the thing that they are surprised about when they hear about it? Are they like, oh, that's how it works? Like you need to have data that's not biased in order to build this, the technology so that it's good technology and not bad technology. What part are they surprised about? Are people really uneducated about it? Totally, that's the case in our country. Like they, they um, the problem, again, going back to the concept that we don't have a culture of data, we don't have a culture of science. Uh, a lot of the things that we do in the country are very superstitious. So I think that's part of our culture, even the business decisions, like the big business corporations, uh, a lot of them are not really like basing their decisions on data yet. It's always like hunch. It's always the feeling. So a lot of challenge really like come to play when discussing data ethics. But if you give them a case example, for example, what happened in Cambridge Analytica or even uh, how we use uh, the use projects, the case projects that I've talked to you about when they see that, oh my, so these are the repercussions when I open, I just give up my data away. So this is how the models transform it. This is how um the mother predict that i will default then i can make a loan or this is the probability that i will be put in jail because of my ethical mm. background so things like that um they it would be yeah. like they would realize it if you really like humanize it to their level that okay this is the effect to you as a person as a society so you need to really like um be more aware of it and not not really like fully understand everything but just aware of the repercussions of this technology Okay, but in the Western world, like you can't really, the Western world, people are educated about about ethics and ethics and AI, but it doesn't seem to change what big corporations are doing or how they're manipulating and not even like, you know, I mean, what happened in, in uh, was it Google where Timnit Gebru, Timnit Gebru, like the biggest, uh, she's the one from Coded Bias. Yeah. Um, she was, she, you know about her, right? Yes. It's from Google. Okay. So she's the one. 
Yeah, she is in Google. Is she got kicked out. You know yes, exactly. So that's like a, a practical case of somebody in Google fighting for data ethics. Um, she's from a marginalized, uh, you know, she's dark, dark skinned. Um, like, same thing. It's in the Western world. Everybody knows about ethics. Google's still trying to cover things up. So is that really the way forward? Are corporations going to acknowledge AI or ethics or does it have to come from <laughs> so it's where activism comes into play again we need to back on the concept of demand and supply right so it's how the business works so we need to strategize how we can do that so again we need to give the power back to the people they should dictate what technology they want how they want it to be right so if there is a clamor of people hey we are aware of how you are passing our data you need to do our demands we need to follow these things because we are the end users and that's the point of technology it's always about the end users and we need to stop calling people users because again the users term is is this used for drug addicts right so we need to use uh it in a more like humanized uh feature so um or even terms so that people can have better understanding of this technology so they can clamor and uh, take back control of their data of how the information is processed and that's where we go back to the power in numbers, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, I, I mean, I've talked to um, a few people on this and, you know, people who don't work in the field. And I think a lot of, I mean, their reaction is, but, you know, do people care? Obviously, a part of the education is, yeah, you you should care. But I don't know if people have an appetite for this. For, I mean, the word ethics turns most people off. And then when you're talking about something that's pretty technical, are you getting pushback when you're trying to educate users? <laughs> Is it working? Yeah, um, I think it's all about empathy. Sometimes that's a problem with again cultural differences because sometimes other cultures are self-centered. But I think that's the the good side of the Philippines that we are we don't have that that good concept of self, right? So we always have this like kind of empathy to others. Uh, one thing that I learned from my sociology classes is that meet as many people as you can and learn from their experience. So that's where I'm coming from. Uh, I, I want to meet as many people as I can, connect as many people as I can, learn collectively from our experiences and get collective wisdom. And then through those collective wisdom, we can have empathy because now we know where they are coming from. We know the issues that they're struggling with. We have a concrete picture of their complex systems. So therefore, we can rally for them, not because we are directly affected, but we echo their calls as well because we believe that everything is connected. I, l I love that. I, it's like um, the Philippines might be the perfect society to crack technology ethics. Interesting. So, do you guys have quite an active, uh, quite an active research base in the Philippines that seem to gravitate towards ethics and even data ethics? Is this something that's quite a hot topic over there? Zero. <laughs> no. Uh, no, not entirely zero, but that you mentioned academic, right? So there are no like academic discussions right now, but there is an organization um, called Data Ethics Philippines. So um, their goal is to just start conversation about data ethics. Again, it's still in its infancy. They started just last year, December. I actually was invited to talk about data ethics as well based on my practice with them, but it's a good platform to start the conversation. But in terms of direction and trajectory, they need to be like more concrete, objective based of study to really like quantify the things that I am saying so we can have more informed decisions on how we can ramp up our efforts to understand ethics and data in general in the country. Hmm. 
And for, I mean, I, you know, when, when Alex, when you mentioned earlier that, um, that Philippines might be the perfect society to, to, you know, start with these data ethics movements and mm. stuff. Unfortunately, I think the most powerful societies in our world have too much sense of self. So and true. therefore, therefore, I'm like, it's kind of demotivating, right? Listening to Albert, you're like full of energy talking about like how it should be, why it should be. And if we can only convince the world that this is important. Mm. Um, but I think like these deep rooted issues in all of our societies are going to just, you know, make that really hard to, mm. to happen. The hope that I, that I get from data scientists and um, people who are working with machine learning is that it has this potential to be the great leveler like it's it's the ultimate democratization of of knowledge and everything that you're talking about in terms of privacy and so on. And yet, companies which employ machine learning in 2020 compared to the laggards who employ it in 2030, you're talking about the the death of of business, right? You're talking about the countries which employ or which get involved in data now. Or, or to be honest, that ship sailed. It's it seems like such a shame because it's the the great hope of the field. It, it may turn out, ironically, that machine learning is the thing that drives inequality even further, right? that splits us apart even more. It's such a shame. So you think that the kind of cure to this is is education? I mean, are we talking about educating of the masses so that it trickles up into, into their voting, into their political leaders and kind of make, is that kind of the basic, I guess, strategy of, of your activism? Yeah. Um, not. Yes and no, because I, I think education has a huge part of it. But we need to remember that we are not Messiah. We're not the savior of people. So the thing is that we just need to integrate more to them. We need to live with them. We need to share the experiences that they have for us to have a better understanding of what systems to build. And I think that's what's missing because always, like, for example, data scientists or like even engineers are on a pedestal. They're always in these high places. And then they give solutions to the people without understanding the context. So we need to be more grassroots on the things that we educate. So to be honest, in, in my line of work, instead of me like educating other people, it's always the other way around. I'm always learning to the simple folks, the farmers, the fisher folks that I met with. Most of the things that I am doing, I learned it from them. So the people are my teacher. And the, mm. the teachings that I learned from them are the things that I innovate and I'll just give back to them. So it's the way of me giving back to the people because they are my teachers. Um, and I think it's also like um, a good thing that you pointed uh, a while ago about how different cultures and different societies evolve. But I think right now what is important is international solidarity. So again, I, I comment on Dena for really like uniting people across different segments of the world uh, to like learn from our shared experiences and think how we can move forward as like a global citizen. So definitely that's the subject for the future, right? We're more connected. The boundaries are getting less and less um, um, rigid. So definitely it's a way for us to really like think that education is not like the only solution. The, the colonial education that we are thinking uh, is not the way to go, but also uh, having an enriched conversation of how we define education. Really, um, what is to be educated by the masses? What is to learn from their experiences and use it as your motivation to create effective systems? So, to people out there, how do they educate themselves? What, what would you recommend? Because you know, to have a conversation, you need to 
I mean, at least know that you have to ask the, a question, but you know, people don't know what they don't know. So how do you, how do you get that conversation going? First, don't do it alone. So you're going to be tired if you're going to do it alone. Uh, always, always find people who have a conversation, have a debate of what uh, your worldview is. So that's a start. Don't do it alone because you're going to be tired. So find us like-minded people, um, rally on that cause, talk about how you can strategize on how to find the relevant problems to solve, validate it by getting data points, like asking people, living with them. And then through those conversations, then you can uh, think of a way on how you can build that education pipeline. But the whole process is already educating, right? You finding a people, mm -hmm. you connecting with them, like thinking of uh, problems that you wanted to solve and learning throughout the process of communicating. I think that's, uh, we need to stress that out. Communication uh, and education really like, goes hand in hand. But that's also, that also seems like people need to be pushed out of their comfort zone, right? Because, you know, exactly. for someone like you, that's very, very uh, easy. You want to continue learning. You want to go meet the farmers and talk to the farmers and learn about their lives. But if you think about the majority of the people, they've never left their hometown or they've never left their town. They don't ask questions. They don't, you know, because they don't want to make them uncomfortable. So what about those people? How do you, how do you? I am also that person. <laughs> like years ago, I'm exactly that type of person. But I started small. Remember in physics, we call, there is a process called adiabatic process, meaning take it slow. Don't go like across the mile uh, right away because you will be tired, you will be frustrated because your, your ideals are not translating. So this is a long protracted war that we need to go together. So it's, it's a long process that, that needs to be taken care of. And then again, that's why we need each other to support, uh, to, to keep ourselves motivated. Uh, again, remove yourself from that kind of like self and focus on the self. Uh, think about how you can unite more people to this certain cause. So we usually define ourselves not, 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 not as an entity or as an organization, but as a cause. For example, uh, one of my organization, we don't really like call ourselves the name of our organization, but we represent ourselves as our motto. For example, science and technology for the people. So that's what we associate with. We associate with the concept, we associate with a rally call. So we don't um, navigate to like a specific person or like a messianic group that could change a lot of things. And do you see do you see the same thing happening in your government as well? Like do you you have a president, right? Yeah, so that's the problem because um, again, culturally speaking, I think I also see it in the Philippines that we are bombarded by culture, for example, Hollywood culture. We believe that a hero will save our nation from all the things that's happening, but that's not the, the way to go. We realized even from my practice that election can do something, but it's not the ultimate goal. So definitely uh, the people should unite and think of the best systems that would work for them. It will not come from an individual or a savior. So definitely it should be like, I feel like I'm uh, discussing socialism, but that's what really like <laughs> how I think about right now. The, the economy, the things that, that we like need to move forward should not be based on profit but based on need. So by creating an economy that is based on need, by based on humanized technology, then we can have better worlds and better systems. I'd be interested to, to know if you had to be an activist for one thing, what would that be? <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> I'm also like um, doing advocacy for the environment, for like politics. But I think um, my calling is that you should never waste the things that you are gifted with. So I, I recognized early on that I have 
like good sense of mathematics and science. So that's what what I do. I advocate for a culture of science in the Philippines, which is always superstitious. So I, I always advocate for using science and technology, using my skills in my activism. So science and technology for the people. So that's the motto that I use or that we use in our organizations. That's super smart. That's super smart. Like, like you, you're like, I'm skilled in this one thing. I guess that's what I'm stuck with my whole life. So I need to make the most of it. <laughs> exactly. Interesting. What a, what a fantastic place to stop. I mean, what a positive note to end with. Thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute privilege talking to you. Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with? Or have you said your piece? <laughs> I think I'm all good. Uh, just like a parting note, I think... Um, Collaborative and collective innovation is the way to go. So I really encourage all of our audience, our listeners to do the same. Find your passion, advocate on something, and collaborate more in solving all of the complex problems that we have using data and your current skills. Got to work together. Thank you. That was great. Thank you.